everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 103 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Working Girl on your Can Big Jack Come Out to Play podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. This week we are joined by our friend Anna, who jumped at the chance to talk about this movie when she heard I hadn't seen it. Anna and I sit down and live tweet Grey's Anatomy together every Tuesday night. We've been doing that for a year. So I am so glad that you're here and that I get to hear your beautiful voice. Will you please tell us about your experience with Working Girl? Thank you, Mandy and Matthew, for having me. Um, So I have a very long history with Working Girl. I was probably eight years old the first time I saw it definitely too young to actually be watching it. I just found it while channel surfing. And then every time I saw it was on TV, I watched it again and kind of figured out the plot. And in my senior year in college, I took a class focused on Cinderella. And our final paper was to analyze a piece of media through the lens of Cinderella. And I chose Working Girl and I got an A. Nice. (laughs) That actually sounds really interesting. I had to suggest it to my professor because it wasn't on the list of pieces of media to choose from, and I didn't like anything else that was on the list. (laughs) Okay. What? What? Do you remember what sort of thing it was that was on the list? Other people covered Pretty Woman, um, the Disney Cinderella, the Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderellas. You know, the one I think it was back in the '60s, and then in in the '90s, and uh, there were like some Cinderella ballets. Okay. Yeah. So doing a bit more the rags to riches element. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm, fascinating. So we're coming to this now. Um, Mandy, after you were born, it's a genre you like. This is We've had a run of these. <laughs> How come you've not seen this film that is so suitable for you? Honestly, it's only because it's made in the 80s. I mean, we know that 80s movies are the black hole of my pop culture existence. So that's the only reason I can come up with for never having seen it. Because you're right. This movie is so spot on Mandy. Hmm. Which which film was it where we mentioned this? Because I remember it being a a real surprise. Was it when we did The Graduate? No, it was when we did... Oh, crap. It was either with Joshua or Daniel? as the the guest i remember because the guest's response was oh my god i can't believe you haven't seen that so flatliners or blade runner probably flatliners i would imagine (laughs) yeah i I, i'm actually not sure because i remember the response more than i remember what we were actually talking about that day <laughs> because it was just one. I mean, I'm so accustomed to people. No saying, indictment on that film at all. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. Just, I'm so used to people being. Oh my god, I can't believe you haven't seen that. But the response on that particular one was just like this horrid. Oh my gosh, gasp! And I, I, I remember that, um, which made me feel terrible that I hadn't actually seen this movie. So, did you know what it was about, or did you think it was like about prostitution or something? No, I just didn't know, honestly. And it had. Melanie Griffith, I mean, we'll we'll talk about this in a little bit, but Melanie Griffith is not someone I've really seen much of her work. And and so, and, and back then, Harrison Ford was just this old guy who I didn't care about, you know, so I just never watched it. Okay. That's fair. Cool. <laughs> um, so Working Girl is a 1988 romantic comedy directed by Mike Nichols, written by Kevin Wade and stars Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, and Sigourney Weaver. And Carly Simon's Let the River Run won the Academy Award and Golden Globe for Best Original Song in 1989. 
It won a Grammy Award for Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture for Television. That's a mouthful. In 1990. And the movie was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress for both Sigourney Weaver and Joan Cusack. There was a short-lived TV adaptation by the same name starring Sandra Bullock. Did you know that? I did not. A while back, they were on YouTube. I don't know if they still are. It was pretty bad. I think I only watched one episode. Oh, no. But it's there if you want to, you know see it okay it also had um the guy who played mr turner on boy meets world oh okay so, yeah um so melanie griffith was struggling with drug and alcohol abuse at the time of filming and ch- she checked into rehab three weeks after rapping and according to people magazine her wake-up call came on the set when the director mike nichols pulled her aside when she showed up on the set drunk yeah, and you can it, her look changes a few times during it. Mm-hmm. You can you can see this is someone who is not necessarily taking the best care of themselves. She she looks a little bloated, like mm. glassy eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. and then, something that it, I I love about the movie is it has so many hey it's that guy is like it has Oliver Platt and Kevin Spacey and Ricky Lake and Amy Aquino. Did you notice all those people? Ricky Lake. I yeah. I now I that you say Ricky the Lake, name, yeah. I know it was her. I recognized her, and I was like, I know who that is. Okay, that was was hey, it's the girl from Hairspray. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I spotted some some folks watching it too. Um, even just watching at the beginning, like my notes are like, oh my god, Alec Baldwin's in this. Joan Cusack is in this. What? I had no idea. It was it was great, kind of preparing for what was going to come seeing the names and the, the opening credits oh yeah and and because i like to sing her praises sigourney weaver was nominated for both best actress and best supporting actress this year yeah she was also nominated for gorillas in the mist mm. i believe um and that's the big gorilla that tess carries on her back when uh Catherine comes comes back on the hel- on the helicopter that was a reference to that movie. Oh, okay. Very nice. <laughs> I have not seen that movie. I have not either. Just okay. Yeah, it's okay. Hmm. Okay, that's it's got some good weaver put... in it, so it's wonderful. Bobs, but... <laughs> right, right. Okay. All right. Well, if you haven't seen Working Girl, it is not about prostitutes, as one may think. When a secretary's idea is stolen by her boss, she seizes an opportunity to steal it back by pretending she has her boss's job. And the tagline on the DVD says, for anyone who's ever won, for anyone who's ever lost, and for anyone who's still in there trying. That makes it sound like this like really super inspirational movie. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's kind of built as a comedy, but I really, it doesn't read like a comedy to me. It feels a lot more like a drama. Mm. Yeah. I think Wikipedia called it a romantic comedy drama. Mm-hmm. But I mean, to me, it, it does actually, it fits the bill for rom-com. And so I just called it romantic comedy. But I don't tend to think romantic comedies are actual comedies most of the time either. Like, True. it's not like the anchor or Anchorman or, you know, Austin Powers or something like that. It's not that level of comedy. It's just, it's lighter than something like Saving Private Ryan. Right. It's not super serious. <laughs> right. Is that your go-to pull for, like, super serious movie? (laughs) 
know. It's just what popped into my head. Okay. Um, D-Day. That's the most serious we can do on a film. I mean, I could have said, like, The Firm or I... Yeah, okay. The Godfather. Schindler's List. List, Yeah. Mm. I mean, we've done a lot of uh, dramas on this show. Mm. All right. How were you able to watch the movie? So I own the DVD. Of course you do. I I needed it for my paper. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Have you watched it many times in the run-up to recording this? Have you revisited it? Oh, I watch it all the time. Oh, nice. (laughs) In the States, it's only available to rent. It's not available on any of the subscription streaming services, so I had to rent it on Amazon. Yeah, same same over here. It was the same price everywhere, but I had Sky on at the time, so I rented it off the Sky store. Yeah. It, it it was one of those situations of sitting down and getting the iPad, like, is it on Google? Is it on Netflix? Is it on Amazon? Is it on Sky? Nope. Right, what's on at the moment? Let's rent it there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, Mandy, um, Mike Nichols, director, and a very, very strong cast. What's your experience of them? Um, well, we've actually done another Mike Nichols movie on the show. He directed The Graduate. I think that's the only thing that I've seen that he's done. Okay. Um, Kevin Wade, who wrote this movie, he also wrote, he, he has a very eclectic collection of scripts under his belt, I think. He wrote the um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito film, Junior. He wrote Meet Joe Black, and he wrote Made in Manhattan, which none <laughs> of those are like the other. I mean, Made in Manhattan's kind of like a, it's a rom-com, so it's similar to Working Girl, at least, but. And know. it also has the, like, impersonation factor, because she's pretending to be above the oh, class, Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. You're right. Yeah. But, I mean, Junior and Meet Joe Black just don't kind of fit, fit into that. Right. Um, we've talked about Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver before on the show, so um, I'll avoid repeating ad nauseum the things that I've seen them in. Um, Melanie Griffith is the one that surprised me the most. I've actually only ever seen her in the movie Now and Then. I'm familiar with her. I know her name. I know her face. I know she was married to Antonio Banderas for a really long time. Mm-hmm. But I've never actually seen her do anything. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and kind of acting heritage and, you know, families of actors. Mm-hmm. Melanie Griffith is the daughter of Tippi Hedren, uh, famously in The Birds. And she is the mother of Dakota Johnson. I, yeah, I think I did know that. That's, that's a family right there. And like you said, you know, previously married to Don Johnson and Antonio Banderas. Right. Mm. Hmm. Do we want to talk about your experience with similar material and other rom-coms you like? I mean, do we really need to? I think everybody knows <laughs> that rom-com is my go-to genre. So I've seen a lot. Okay. So for me, Working Girl is one of those movies I watched growing up that set my expectations for working in an office for an executive. Whether it was accurate or not, but when I started working, I was kind of expecting it to be kind of like Working Girl. The other movie (laughs) that set my expectations was Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. I don't know if either of you have seen that one. Many, many times. Yeah. Yeah. But that's all. That gave me an expectation of what a boss would be like, what being an assistant would be like. It's just when I started working, that's what I expected. It's kind of funny. I'll get right on that, Rose. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, that's funny. So your your expectations were, were wildly inaccurate. And outdated. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking back to like the 80s and early 90s. Yeah. Okay, so now having seen a great rom-com with a great cast, what did you think of it? Did you enjoy Working Girl? 
I did, actually. By the end of it, I absolutely loved it. Initially, I had some cynical barriers to get over. Mm-hmm. I-, I find myself when I watch movies, particularly for this show when I'm taking notes, although it bleeds over when I'm I'm just watching something for enjoyment, my cynicism meter is like sky high on everything. Like I question everybody's motives. I just, I, I think that, that things that are said for the sake of you know, romance or, or somebody trying to be sweet is, is really not. It's a ploy, you know. So I struggled with Harrison Ford's character at the beginning. I thought, wow, what a schmuck. He's terrible. He's going to take advantage of her. You know, I ne- it never once occurred to me that he might actually be a stand-up guy. And so I had oh, wow. to, like, jump past all of these cynical barriers and get to the point where I could actually be immersed in the story and enjoy it for the story that it's trying to tell. Mm. And once I was able to do that, I absolutely loved it. And the ending was amazing. Well, and there are definitely some moments in the movie that were fine for 19, for the 1980s. But, mm-hmm. you know, we look at it in 2018, like him carrying her passed out over his shoulder up to his apartment that we're just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> like, just it, it yeah. wouldn't read. They couldn't do that today. Yeah, I, I think the main one for me from Harrison Ford was when he first meets Tess. Um, he has a line where he says, you're the first woman I've seen at one of these things that dresses like a woman, not like a woman thinks a man would dress if he was a woman. And I can't decide if I love that line or hate that line because the cynical part of me is just like, oh, my God, shut up, Harrison Ford. You should not say things like that. But on the other hand, he's actually kind of right because... I was going to talk about this a little later, but I'll go ahead and bring it up now. One of the first things I noticed about Catherine's character was at the party that she had to introduce herself to all of the men, the executives that she was going to be working with. She was wearing this beautiful, flashy red dress, which is not something that women in power usually do, particularly back in the 80s. I I had my, my last boss... You know, she's a woman who she worked very hard to get to where she was. She became an executive. You know, she was the director of our whole apartment. And we would go to conferences and stuff. And on the social outings, she would wear, like, beautiful dresses and stuff. And I made a comment, like, oh, you should wear that dress to work. And she just looked at me and she said no. Like, she, it would never even have occurred to her to wear that dress to work because it made her – too feminine, too vulnerable, and she needed to be more on par with the men who she was quote-unquote competing with. And so to see in the 80s a female executive doing that, I really loved it. And so what Harrison Ford said was spot on, but at the same time, it it frustrated me. And red is really Catherine's signature color because we see it later, I think, when she storms into the meeting, you know, at the climax of the movie, she's in red. Mm -hmm. And then in her final scene on the elevator, she's in this kind of like neon reddish orangish and with this like neon orange lipstick. Right. Like she's not afraid to stand right. out. Like, but that's her look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought she was channeling a kind of Nancy Reagan, Margaret Thatcher look. Mm, yeah. So it's it, it's a strong single bold color, but it's not ostentatious and it's not necessarily revealing. And it's classic cuts. Right, Mm. right. But it is very much, you know, standout 
look at me, I am the woman in the room and I am a woman who got to this place, which I really, really like about her. You know, she's not saying I can't be myself. I have to, what's the word? I don't want to say demean, but I have to like lower myself to the expectations of the men in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and so that's what I really liked about it. And I think that's why I struggled with Jack's line, because he's calling attention to it. And I like that he's calling attention to it. But at the same time, it came across as super sexist. And I just can't I figure out, was, like, which side of the fence I fall on on it. I think it was also that just before he saw Tess, he was talking to um, a couple people. And they were trying to talk shop with him. And one of them was a woman. And she really was dressed like a like in a pantsuit mm-hmm. with like and he tests wears shoulder pads throughout the movie too mm-hmm. uh but they still look softer on her right somehow but yeah definitely but yeah so so once i could get past some of that stuff i i did really really enjoy it and, and i'm so excited that jack ended up being a stand-up guy and not the horrible misogynist i was afraid he was gonna be so that worked out well in my favor so i still have issues with the, the whole taking her to his apartment because he still undresses her and he still sleeps in the same bed. Yeah, and like, really, he didn't have to take off her dress. She could have no. just slept in her dress. And he did admit that he might have peaked, which was, it was played as a joke, but mm. really, come on. I think in 1988, though, his actions yeah. appeared very chivalrous and, and gentlemanly, you know? I mean, he didn't know where she lived, so he couldn't take her anywhere but to his apartment. She was passed out. Like, he even tried to have a conversation with her. I thought it was adorable that he was trying to offer her, like, oh, it's too late for coffee. Do you want herb tea? I always like herb tea when, you know, I'm in your condition. <laughs> you know, yeah. That was adorable. Like, he was actually trying to be a good guy. He's warning her about the state of his apartment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I... I'm on the fence about taking the dress off of her. I mean, it's a $6,000 dress. He didn't know that, but I appreciate the fact that she didn't sleep in a $6,000 dress. So I, I, I don't know. I, more than anything, it's another opportunity for the film to have a woman, and particularly Melanie Griffith, in her underwear. Yeah. Oh, yeah and is, is and she is it. in her underwear so much. Yes. Yeah. When she's um, getting ready for the party with Sin, and she's, you know, rifling through Catherine's closet, mm-hmm. and she's just, you know... In the full-on lingerie with the garter belt and everything. And it's just like, is I think this is what a man thinks a woman would be, look like while she was getting ready. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like the scene earlier on where we were first introduced to Mick, um, he got her lingerie for her birthday. And the whole point of that scene between her and Mick was just to show us her putting the lingerie on. Because as soon as she had it on and was done, they cut. Yeah. To something completely different. Like the conversation they were having was completely irre- irrelevant. They just wanted us to look well, at her. I think it also shows us that he really doesn't care about what she wants. Mm. Uh, she indicates that he does this all the time. Mm, yeah. She says, just once I wish you could give me something I could wear out of, outside of this apartment. Yeah, um, that is a wonderful oh, line. <laughs> later on at the engagement party, we see that he has also given her friend Sin lingerie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it was an engagement party. It wasn't a, like a lingerie shower, mm. you know, but it's just kind of this is this guy's go to gift. Yeah. For the women in his life. It's just kind of even for his girlfriend. It's kind of creepy, in my opinion. Yeah. Alec Baldwin can play creepy really, really well. There was uh, an interesting article linked to in Rolling Stone, uh, an interview with Melanie Griffith at this time. 
And the interviewer uses a line where they say, before Working Girl, Melanie Griffiths was known mostly for her beautiful body and the way that nearly half her directors suggested she expose it. Now, she had been in films where she did nude scenes and uh, a few raunchy moments, but they sort of imply that Working Girl doesn't do that thing, and I think Working Girl absolutely does. Absolutely. She gets a full-on topless scene later, and it's completely unnecessary. Yes. Mm. And, well, even when she's in bed with Harrison Ford, they do a shot that very clearly shows her exposed breast, and it didn't need to. Yeah, she's got that um, strapless bra that is so low mm-hmm. that her boobs are, like, pra- practically popping out of it. Yeah, yeah, they definitely went out of their way to show her body. I mean, and it, it, it's a good one. Don't get me wrong, but that doesn't mean we always need to see it. No, absolutely. But other than that, <laughs> she does have a wonderful transformation through the film. Mm-hmm. It does work really well to see her step by step sort of trying to take on this character, this role that she's trying to, to build up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way she code switches when she's doing those phone calls mm. uh, is just so funny and just so impressive. You see her switch from, you know, the pretend kind of an exaggerated version of her real accent secretary and then you know she switches into her upper class accent and then she goes back to talking in her normal voice to sin it's just really impressive and we also see her transformation physically you know it's not just that she goes from looking like staten island tess to looking like manhattan tess because it's it's really gradual because after Tess catches Mick and Doreen in the act. The very next scene, she's, this is before her haircut. She's sitting behind Catherine's desk. She has her hair pulled back. I think she's still in her clothes, but she already looks like she's on the next step. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we have her haircut and, you know, she's wearing Catherine's clothes. In that wedding scene, she looks so amazing in that white dress and she's carrying a Chanel bag. And by the time we get to Sin's wedding, which seems really fast, she had her engagement party and they got married right away. (laughs) (laughs) This whole movie seems really fast. But when she's, when they're out of the church and she's in that bridesmaid's dress, she just looks so out of place. And, you know, she's, she's dressed the part, but it doesn't look like her anymore. Mm -hmm. And by the, by that final scene, when she's walking into Trask, for her new job, you know, she's walking in in heels. She's not walking in in sneakers. And she just looks so like the softer version of Catherine. Mm-hmm. Hmm. She looks the part. She's not dressing it. She is it. Right. So I think that's actually a really good way to transition into your Cinderella analysis, because I think it's actually really brilliant. I would not have come up with the idea that this is a Cinderella story on my own. And, and I think that that your analysis of it in this way is absolutely spot on. So will you walk us through that? Thank you. Yeah. So from the very beginning, the movie opens on wishmaking. You know, Sin is Tessa's fairy godmother in this movie. And she, you know, holds out the ding dong and asks Tess if she made a wish, which kind of like sets up what this movie is going to be about. Um, she Sin helps her get ready for the party at Dewey Stone. She plays her secretary to cover for her, which brings me one of my favorite lines, which is coffee, tea, me. (laughs) I love that line. Um, She tells the secretary pool about Tess losing her job, which leads to their collection. Mm -hmm. She's kind of 
throughout the movie, she's taking care of Tess for the most part. And um, Catherine is the evil stepmother. She makes her the two-way street promise, just like in Cinderella, the stepmother says, you know, if you do all these things, then yes, you can go to the ball. And then Cinderella does all those things and it's like, no, you're not going to the ball. I just didn't think that you would do that. And in several scenes, Catherine subjugates Tess from the moment they meet when Catherine makes it a point that she's younger and she mocks her jewelry. And the biggest one for me is Tess sweating over the dim sum cart Mm. like an indentured servant. Couldn't Catherine have hired servers? Yeah. And she, it's just like physically the, the makeup, you know, she just looks like she has been in a steam room. Mm-hmm. And even when she looks so terrible, uh, Catherine says, well, you can't busy the quarterback with passing out the Gatorade. So in the scene where Catherine is preparing for her ski trip, Tess is literally on her knees at Catherine's feet. It's really striking blocking and it reinforces their respective roles. Mm. In that same scene, Tess is on her knees at Catherine, and Catherine is condescendingly telling her, make it happen, only then do we get what we deserve. And she has that whole kind of pep talk scene with Tess, where she says, who makes it happen? I do. I make it happen. You know, it's just kind of that fake pep talk. Mm. When Catherine comes back from Switzerland, she, you know, demands that Tess helps her with bathing and changing. And when she's laying in her bed as Tess runs around taking care of her, I'm reminded of the image of the evil stepmother in her bed petting her cat. So that's Catherine. And you might think this prince in the story is Jack, but it's Trask. He's the one who's going to elevate her station and get her what she wants and needs, a chance to move up in her career. The ball is Trask's daughter's wedding. Tess dancing with Trask is a Cinderella dance with the prince. She charms him has to run off suddenly and drops her slipper, which is the idea. So she drops her slipper, and the moment when she has to prove that it's her slipper, that it belongs to her, Catherine tries it on, and it doesn't fit. And Jack says, she's your man, which in the 1980s would have been a compliment. Mm -hmm. And that's how she proves to Trask that she's the one that he was looking for. And if Jack were the prince, then we would have ended the movie with the domestic happiness scene. But that's not the final point of the movie. It ends with her triumphant move to her own office with her own secretary assistant. <laughs> and, you know, we hear, I think Lonnie has said this before, that the way a story ends tells you what the story is about. So the story isn't about, I mean, we call it a, a rom-com, but the story isn't necessarily about the romance. And it's not about Tess finding a man. It's about Tess finding her way in the world and getting to move up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the the idea that Trask is the prince and not Jack. I've actually, because um, earlier this year was the 30-year anniversary of Working Girl, and there I found a few articles online, and a lot of people were saying that they thought that Jack was the girl in the movie. Like, hmm. can, can you unpack that for me? His role was... I guess, to be a little bit more desperate and for for him to be pursuing tests, but in the girlish way. Mm-hmm. Is it because he he's the one who, once they got started, he was desperate for the deal to go through because it's kind of a Hail Mary for him because he's had some deals fall through. And so this ends up being. Yeah. I guess because he's insecure about that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but also, you know, he's the one who keeps pushing for, for for them to get together. Right. You know, she's not really pursuing him romantically at all. That's true. Yeah. Okay. He's the one who wants lunch and dinner and drinks. And does that come from the fact that we'd normally watch a film like this and it's about a man? So the fact is that the woman is the protagonist? Um, despite, oh, maybe. Despite not getting top billing, but, you know, it is her film. It is... Well, I, I don't want to say gender flip because there's no reason it should be either way, but uh, against the norm, certainly for this period. You can definitely imagine this movie, you know, reframed to Jack's perspective mm. because he really does have his own character transformation as well, kind of. Can you imagine the Jack that we know being with Catherine? God, no. Like, how did they get to, I, I assume <laughs> they probably met in college. But, you know, how do those two even get together? You would imagine she pursued him. Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, and probably for the look of it more than anything. Mm, yeah. I, I like the idea of um, Sin being the, the fairy godmother. Mm-hmm. Is there almost a handoff? Once Jack is introduced, he in some ways fulfills that role because he's the one who then says, right, now you want to uh, have this deal, which I can then help you do and pushes it through. Because Sin goes into her whole, like, stay in your lane, get yeah. back together with Mick, which is, does not work for me. Like, I don't really believe she would have done that. Right. Yeah, I hated that. And you kind of, from her perspective, I guess you can see her point, you know, in their small insular community, she still cares about Mick, even if he did this dirty to her friend. Um, and she's concerned that Tess is going to screw up her life. If she thinks that she's looking out for her. I think she does think she's looking out for her, but she did it in the worst possible way, I think. I I got really upset that she was trying to push her back on Mick, but then I realized that this is a group of friends. You know, it's not just Tess and mm-hmm. Sen are friends and then everybody else is around them. This is a group. So that means Mick and Sen are also friends. So she wants to be supportive to both of them, so she's trying to throw him a bone. Great, whatever. But then... With the whole job thing, she says, sometimes I sing and dance around the house in my underwear doesn't make me Madonna. That is so <laughs> cruel, I think, in, in this particular scenario, because she's basically saying, you're never going to be this thing that you want to be. It's impossible for you to be this thing that you want to be. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that, that Tess is working so hard at becoming. She... She put herself through night school. She's still doing continuing education. She's taking speech classes. You know, she is putting every ounce of her spare time into this goal. And her best friend is saying, this is never going to happen for you and you should stop. And I found myself having an, a real problem with that from a character perspective. I wonder if Sin is almost worried about losing Tess mm. once, once she moves on. You know, she kind of feels like she's outgrowing her. Mm-hmm. Maybe. We even see in the opening scene, you know, when they get off the Staten Island Ferry and Tess tells her that she has speech class and it's played for a joke, but Sin says, you know, what do you need speech class for? You talk fine, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think I just wish that maybe even if there had been some sort of resolution to that, where we see Mm -hmm. Sin apologize or you know really congratulate her I mean I know when they kind of do because that last scene when Tess calls her and is like guess where I'm calling you from and she's so excited and she tells everybody in the secretary pool what's happening you know I mean that's great but I think 
I think their relationship needed a bit more closure or resolution for that piece than to just gloss over it because it leaves me feeling like Tess lets people take advantage of her and Sen is a terrible person. I wonder if it's also one of those things where, you know, it had a male director and a male writer. And if a woman had been behind the camera or behind the script, it would have been different. Maybe. That is a very good shout, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Because I I think the way men and women resolve conflict is very, very different. So that's that's yes. actually a really good point, yeah. Okay, so on, on the, the same sort of thinking, um, Sigourney Weaver's character, is it Catherine? Yes. Um. I, I can never quite decide whether I really like her or just about like her. I, I feel like sometimes she's written really well and sometimes she's just written as pure villain. Here is everything we're supposed to not like about women trying to rise through the ranks. There's a lot of stereotypical she does stuff that she does. But at the same time, she the, the mentor speech that she gives when she's introduced to Tess is quite good. Mm-hmm. And she's clearly successful, like... There's no sense that she's necessarily slept her way to the top and stolen everyone's ideas to get there. She she has a clue about what she's doing. But then, as the film goes on, they just start making her more and more. Uh, exactly that um, evil stepmother and, and absolutely domineering. Is that again just because of the, the writing of it? Well, she has earned her place, but she's also had a lot of help along the way. You know, we see very clearly a class privilege situation. And if it's true that Catherine is the same age as Tess, which I think, you know, we can we might kind of argue over, you know, Tess is a secretary. Catherine is already an executive. You know, we can assume that she went to Harvard. You know, um, her parents are obviously very wealthy. They have this gigantic portrait like a warhol portrait of her in their house (laughs) yeah we see a brief kind of like snapshot of a family portrait on her desk i don't know if you guys noticed it Mm. you can see that her parents are kind of like older they look like old money so while she did she knows what she's doing she's earned her place she's also had a much easier time than tess honestly tess might know more than Catherine, possibly it's one of those things where um, mm. someone who's more engaged, someone who, like Tess probably had to work harder than Catherine. Yeah, work, work twice as hard to be considered half as good. Right, that kind of thing. Yeah. right, exactly. She had to work twice as hard to, to be half as good and she isn't even being regarded. You know, in the beginning when she's working with David Lutz and the other guy and she's, you know, answering that call and she's, telling the guy about the stock that he's concerned Mm -hmm. about. And he says, he don't want to hear that from his secretary, but she knows she's giving her boss advice. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she knows a lot more than anyone would expect her to. Yeah. And you're dead right. She's just not regarded for it. They don't even consider it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like let's at least think about what's being said here. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I do think though that Sigourney Weaver's character was written slightly inconsistently. I think in the beginning when we first met her, I absolutely loved her. I thought, wow, this woman is amazing. She's going to be a wonderful boss. Like she said all the right things. She did all the right things. It was great. Everything about it was good until we got to the point where Tess found out that Catherine was stealing her idea. Once we knew that about her, once we had that insight to what was actually going on inside of Catherine's head – Every time we saw Catherine after that, she was 
kind of a caricature of mm. a woman in power, I think, because we saw her ordering people around. We saw her smacking the guy who was taking care of her in the hospital. You know, we saw her lounging around in a nighty in this bed while she's got her <laughs> her foot up. You know, we see the room full of people. She's having a party or something while she's mm-hmm. also on the phone doing business. And I'm sorry, a woman like Catherine, who is actually trying to do business and get tests to work for her, is not going to be doing it in the middle of a party. Like, I don't buy that for a second. So you didn't see that dim sum scene as her kind of exploiting tests before then? I did a little bit, but I didn't yet know that I hated her and that she was really a terrible person because she did say, I would help you if I could. And Uh from my experience, I've had female bosses do things like that, but who genuinely would have helped if they thought, I don't I haven't been in that exact situation, but you know, who would have helped do some of the grunt work. I've, I've never had a boss who would ask me to do something that they weren't willing to do themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I kind of, in that moment when I was still trying to give her the benefit of the doubt, that's how I was reading that. Although she did have the shitty line, you can't expect the quarterback to pass out the Gatorade. And then she, you know, she pranced off. But at that point we didn't yet know that she was a backstabber. And so I didn't have it. Like I didn't have that feeling And so once we knew that about her, I feel like they just ramped it up to 11 in a way that I felt was inconsistent. I don't know if it's because I've seen the movie so many times that, you know, I can't watch it completely unobjectively. Mm -hmm. But even the scene where Catherine and Tess first meet, you know, she starts off right away by pointing out that she's younger than her. And, you know, she says, oh, nice bunny. And, um, you know, she points out that, she needs to rethink her jewelry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Tess says at the end, like, thank you, Catherine. And Catherine says, and call me Catherine. You know, it's just kind of, it feels like she's cutting her yeah. down several times in that scene. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me, she never asks Tess anything about herself, like her aspirations. If she has any questions, she just kind of like shoots her out of her office as soon as she's done with her. Right. I guess... You're you're absolutely right, but I feel like those things are are very subtle, and yes. and the version of Catherine that we get later in the movie, even when we're seeing Catherine alone and not with Tess, it, it's not subtle anymore. They they take the subtlety mm. out of it because even mm-hmm. when we get to, um, when when Catherine comes back and she asks Tess, "Oh, did you read this? This thing?" I, it occurs yeah. to me that it sounds like I came up with the idea myself. You know, she is so syrupy sweet there. In a moment that's even more so. Like, it's not subtle in that point. That seemed to come out of nowhere for me. Like, I, it's not like that would have been just pulled up on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> so why would she just, you know, open up with that right away? Right, yeah. It just, it seemed really strange. It also, it felt really strange that this movie had, like, it, it tried to have, like, three different conflicts going on at once. Like, did it mm-hmm. really need that extra twist? Like, did we really need to think for a minute that Tess was doing all this for no reason? Like, did did they have to do that? I mean, we find out really quickly that, I mean, because even I, I was like, wow, is she really that syrupy sweet or is she just playing her? Like, I had that, that moment of, of thought. Um, and so I was really glad when Tess actually asked Jack straight up, mm. is this something that mm-hmm. you would do? Like, that was fantastic. 
but I don't think the movie needed it because we already had the conflict of, you know, Catherine's going to find out what Tess is doing. You know, everybody's going to find out what Tess is doing. Like, that's the central conflict here is that can Tess pull this off? Is something going to come of it? Is she going to lose everything because of these lies that she's telling? On top of that, we also have the relationship thing where she's lying to Jack. So did we really, really need this third possible twist like it just felt like it was too much on top of everything else i i like that it forces a slight more feeling of pairing that she and jack are now a team and she does it shows us that she puts his trust her trust in him Mm -hmm. but you're right without sigourney weaver saying that first thing she wouldn't have needed the second thing so hey adds a couple more minutes to the film (laughs) (laughs) okay that's fair enough um we, we keep mentioning the ages um i did definitely want to ask about the ages because they seem to sort of muck around with them a bit. When when Catherine says, oh, I'm about to turn 32, we both sat here and went, no, no, she's not. <laughs> no, no, she's not. And Sigourney Weaver was about to turn 40. Um, there's a bit later where we see Harrison for or, or Jack's resume on a screen, and they, they bring his age down by about five years. Is it just that we're not supposed to believe Sigourney Weaver and we're supposed to go, oh, okay, she is lying. You know, it's a slight flag of, oh, she is trying to put her down. Or is the film just trying to do Hollywood magic of everyone's super young and super beautiful? Well, I wondered if it was one of those, you know, eternally 29 things for Catherine's character. But I also, (laughs) if they were the same age, it also, like I said earlier, it resonated with me that you know, Catherine is so much further ahead and it's them being the same age kind of makes it nice to compare, you know, how far mm-hmm. someone can get when they have the right advantages. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was Hollywood being Hollywood um, right. because I honestly, I grew up thinking that people in their thirties were much older than they actually were because Hollywood cast people who are older than 30 to be 30 you know they, they would always Clearly. Uh-huh. yeah <laughs> they would age people down in in the movies and so my expectation of what 30 looked like wasn't actually what 30 looked like if, if that makes sense um and mm-hmm. i think movies like this are why mm. I, I absolutely think it's just hollywood being hollywood i think it's okay. reasonable that Catherine could have gotten to where she was by the age of 30 and i also think it's perfectly reasonable that tess going through what she went through would have gotten to where she was by age 30. I mean, considering she, it it took her five years to get through night school. I think she said to get her degree. So she Mm -hmm. didn't have the same traditional experience that, that most folks would have. And so it just, it, it felt reasonable to me. It didn't feel weird that they were both 30 other than the fact that, you know, Sigourney Weaver's clearly not 30. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, the last thing that I wanted to touch on was the ending. I, I'm not totally sure I bought that she didn't know what job she was walking into mm. and and that it was going to be her office. Because certainly it is implied in what he says. Uh, and then I don't believe she'd just walk into certainly a job that demands an office without knowing what job she's going in for. But for me, the, the thing that stood out was when she talks to her secretary she she gives a little thing about oh we're just going to work it out you know it, it'll be fine we'll we'll work it whatever i i felt there was a real opportunity there where she could have used some of the phrasing and words that Sigourney Weaver had used on her but done it in such a way of showing that she believed it so okay i have learned from this woman who said learn from me but i'm actually going to deliver on the things that she promised 
maybe she doesn't yet feel like she has the experience or the position to mm. do that. Yeah. Mm. You know, because she's she's at the entry level. That's what Trask said. Mm. She can't really give her assistant the opportunities that Catherine could have given her. Yeah. But you're right. It, it would have been a really great three beat if she had kind of wrapped that up a little bit. Yeah, I expected her to. I was expecting to hear familiar words come out of her mouth. And, and so when that's not what happened, it, it did feel like a little bit of a letdown. But at the same time, I think she was trying to be authentically her in that position. It is nice that she, you know, told her, you don't have to get me coffee unless you're getting some for yourself, because that is something that we see throughout the mm-hmm. movie. You know, Catherine has her get coffees for the both of them. And there were a few times where she's in the meeting as Tessie executive and someone asks about coffee and she just kind of instinctually gets up and says, okay, tell me how. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I did love the girl that she saw in her office who actually says to her, you know, oh, you're, I'm your secretary. I prefer assistant though. It's like, yes, this girl has some confidence. Mm-hmm. I liked her. I love she, uh, Amy Aquino just plays so well, that subtle like recognition, like, oh, this boss is going to be an awesome mm-hmm. boss mm. like she's really impressed yeah i mean she definitely does have some confidence if she would be on the phone in her new mm-hmm. boss's office on the morning her new boss is starting with <laughs> right. her feet on the desk <laughs> like yeah that's absolutely. gutsy <laughs> she has her own phone right yeah absolutely um i mean and it was it totally doesn't make sense it was just done to give us that extra minute of confusion yeah. for, for Tess, but it it was an interesting character beat for a character that we got to see for all of 30 seconds. Who does have a name in the credits. You know, not, not only is she just Tess's secretary, she like is listed as Alice or Alice okay. Baxter or something, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah Miss Baxter, mm. because the woman at the desk says that Miss Baxter is waiting for her. Uh, okay. Oh, that's yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So was it weird to anybody else that when she got there, she already had all these meetings set up and she still doesn't actually know what her job is? <laughs> she's like, you have a schedule. You have blah, 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 blah. Well, she's meeting with Trask later in the day. So maybe that's when they'll discuss what he wants her to do. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you start a job, you should get get your feet under the table and meet people and understand departments. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, I could buy it. Okay. <laughs> all right. So... We know that you love this movie, Anna, that you have watched it many, many, many times. But do you have any particular moments that stand out as favorites? Well, I already mentioned Sin's line. I think that's probably the most famous line, you know, coffee, tea, me. I also love Sin going, $6,000? It's not even leather. (laughs) And I ran the inflation calculation because I was curious. And that's about $12,600 in today's money. Wow. If I were Tess, I probably would have picked something else out of the closet. <laughs> right? The, it, it had the it had the tag on it. Yeah. Like what what was she going to do? Put the tag back on after? Um, I love when Tess tells Mick, "I am not steak. You cannot just order me." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. That is such a great line. Oh, and C- Catherine talking dirty to Jack and saying, "Let's merge." <laughs> you have to wonder how. Far ahead, she thought of that line. Oh, she'd probably been holding on to it for a while. But oh, at the yeah. same time, I don't think she expected to be the one to propose to Jack. She fully expected Jack to propose to her. The way that she is, you know, when she's talking to Tess and she's saying, I've indicated to him that I'm open to an offer. 
I've cleared the month of June and I am, of course, me. Right. <laughs> just say, like, does a real person talk like that? You know, mm. it's just, she is a little caricatured there. Mm-hmm. Open to an offer. Yeah. She's talking about it like it's a business deal, mm-hmm. which is probably, I guess, the way that she's approached her whole life, mm-hmm. I imagine. I, I did like when they finally deliver on that. Because all the way through, I'm like, okay, they're going to have to do a bit of work for Harrison Ford not to be skeezy that he's actually mm-hmm. cheating on Sigourney Weaver with her when they thought they were getting engaged. And then for it to turn out, he was going to break up with her, but hasn't been able to yet. It, it's still not necessarily the best, but it is much better than it felt like it was going to be. And and it's a nice twist on you know what our villain of the piece is going to get. Yeah. Am I the only one who didn't actually see the twist that Jack was Catherine's potential husband, fiance, person? I mean, I really can't say because yeah. I know this movie yeah. so okay. well. I can't. <laughs> yeah. No, I did not see that coming. I was I was actually shocked by that one. I think the only other person it could have been is Trask, because it, it, it was always going to be someone in the film, wasn't it? See, like, I, I can't. I guess on. I just didn't. It, it seemed to be such a throwaway thing, and then once te- once Catherine was gone, it was never brought up again, and so it just didn't occur to me that it mattered. Yeah, d- does he have a line about why he wasn't there or didn't fly over? He said he had to work through the weekend, and then he didn't. She broke her leg, and he didn't want to kick her while she was okay, down. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, Mandy, what about you? What What were the things you really enjoyed in this? Um, I think my favorite line actually comes from a scene we haven't talked about yet, um, which was the scene with Kevin Spacey at the beginning. And so it's a scene where her boss is setting her up. She thinks she's going kind of on a pseudo job interview, and that is not what is happening in this limo. And she stands up for herself and she says, I am hungry, Bob, Mm -hmm. but I am not that hungry. And I thought it was a great way to say she's hungry for moving forward in her career and she really wants to do stuff but she's not going to resort to doing whatever it takes she's not going to sleep her way to the top or even to another secretarial position and i really love that about her and we get a hint that this is something that lutz has done before because when he's telling her about bob speck she says this isn't another setup is it and he says what do i look like a pimp and he doesn't really answer her Hmm. yeah but it doesn't actually make sense. Like, unless he really is just pimping her out so these men get happy, get get their rocks off or whatever. But, I mean, is he really trying to get her to do these things so that she will get another job somewhere else? I think he's playing a prank on her. Okay. Okay. I think he's just messing with mm-hmm. her. Okay. I, I think it is, it is exactly everything that we now get to hear about as you know the men supporting each other sending women over and yes she'll get a new position out of it but exactly like you say it's through him getting his jollies right i wonder if he even you know set her up for the entree program because he tells her that she didn't get it Mm. and he tells her that it's because you know all these other people are more qualified but i wonder if he even bought he even did it at all or if he's just lying to her Mm, that's a really good point yeah but yeah, Kevin Spacey is a hands-on slimy what's-it. That's hard to watch. It was hard to watch, absolutely. Um, he, he played that part a little too well, I think. Mm. Um, the other thing that I really liked 
um, was another line of Tessa's actually was after Mick was cajoled into proposing in public at Sen's engagement party. Mm-hmm. You know, she says maybe. And and then he's like, maybe. What, that's not an answer. And she says, if you want a different answer, ask a different girl. And I honestly I, thought that was the absolute best way to answer that question. It was mm-hmm. classy. She didn't call him out in front of everybody for the crap that he's pulled. And it worked. It really worked for me. Well, and um, I think it's Sen's fiance who, you know, calls him out. And he says, you don't talk about it. You just ask. And I'm like, what? Of course you talk about right. it. Yeah. And who does a public proposal without knowing exactly what the answer is going to be? Too many people, unfortunately. <laughs> when you're at the very least on a break, if not actually yeah. broken up. Right? Yeah. Right. And, you know, poor Doreen is over there, you know, just beside <laughs> yeah. herself. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, Baldwin's. Um, <laughs> what about you, Matthew? I, I, I did like the dim sum because she's like oh yeah i've I've read about this thing from from yeah you know chinese dumplings dim sum and you steam them and it reminded me of when we saw desperately seeking susan and they had to kind of explain a bit what sushi was because it was just oh yeah yeah it's dim sum yeah okay we've got it (laughs) (laughs) well now we do (laughs) Mm. maybe not 1988 no what i love about that scene is that the woman is kind of you know sneering at her and says oh you read w Mm. and Melanie Griffith could have played this snidely, but she is so sincere when she says, oh, well, you know, you never know when the, where the best idea is going to come from. And it's just, it's a line reading that was really on point for me. Mm-hmm. And then she has to cut her down again and says, oh, well, if you think dim sum is the next big idea. And then she has to serve it, which, okay. She kind of yeah. screwed herself. Yeah. <laughs> I liked that the uh, company they were doing the work for was called Trask, Trask Industries. Uh, Trask Industries is the company that builds the Sentinels in the X-Men universe. Uh, Peter Dinklage is Bolivar Trask, who runs it, which means this is an X-Men film, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Which one came first? Uh, I think Trask the character came first in the X-Men, but I think Trask Industries didn't come up until the movies. So I think this is Mm -hmm. the first one with Trask Industries. It's a good name as well, Trask. And lastly, there was an absolutely ridiculous thing that I don't think the film intends to be ridiculous. I think it wants to be, here's sexy Sigourney Weaver and a little nighty in stockings. Isn't it sexy, sexy? But the fact she's got a hold up on and a giant cast on the other leg. (laughs) It's just so ridiculous to be like, I've got this one stocking on. (laughs) She also had a bunny slipper on. (laughs) Did you notice that? I love that she asks Tess for an afghan to cover up the cast. And then as soon as Jack walks in, the first thing he does is throw off the afghan and knock on the, yeah, yeah. On the cast. Yeah. It's like, you know, she she's trying to control the, the situation and it's Jack is just going to barrel through mm-hmm. it. But I just thought, I, I don't know if the film knows how it looks or if it's just trying to have mm-hmm. another woman in her underwear. But it is just a, another moment of ridiculous villainy. So, well, she probably, she's just wearing, you know, thigh highs or something. But just have one on and a cast. Great. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. We've been talking about this movie for a little while now, and we've had a lot to say. Is there anything else that we need to talk about Working Girl? So the last question that I have is about the ending. Does it read as bittersweet to you? Because, you know, we're hap- it, it's, it's almost like the ending of The Graduate in a way, which Mike... Nichols also did. 
So we have this moment where she's triumphant. You know, she's in her office. She's talking to Sin. She's so happy. And then the camera pulls back and we see all of these other people in their offices, you know, just toiling around, you know, on the phone working. And it's almost like ants in an ant farm. And it just like keeps pulling back and pulling back. And we see, you know, the New York skyline. And it's just, she, Tess got what she wanted, but she's also kind of like just a worker, like a worker bee now. I I honestly didn't read it that way because she was a worker bee before. I mean, she mm-hmm. was just one. I mean, she was in a secretarial pool, you know. There were right. just so many. And, and she had, God, she had been transferred, what, four times in the same company? Mm-hmm. Um, because of, of being part of the, the secretarial pool and, and how it wasn't working out. And, and so I don't know if it was the same company. I thought it was a headhunter who was just assigning her to different jobs. Yeah, just like a temp agency. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. initially I thought it was a temp agency, but then, I don't know, something something about the way she said it, um, which Olympia Dukakis is wonderful, and I've never heard her do a British, uh, not British, Brooklyn accent before, and that, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but just something the way that conversation played out made me think it was with the same company and I couldn't figure out how that worked. But either way, you know, she she keeps just moving around and moving around to do the same job. And, and so I, I was thinking this offers her stability. It's giving her what she wanted, what she's been working for is actually, you know, she's getting to use the knowledge that she has. And so I read it as very warm and and mm-hmm. like happy making for me anyway i i enjoyed the ending yeah i'm not sure i saw it as bittersweet but it is very much um oh it's almost like a kind of i think it's dragnet like there are there are two elements to this there are the executives and there are the secretaries this is their story it's mm-hmm. kind of because it opens up with a sort of helicopter shot shot and zooming in on things mm-hmm. so it goes in and we're going to tell you this one story of this working girl and then at the end we're going to zoom out Mm. yeah because it does you're right it does kind of zoom in on her almost i think doesn't the camera even like zoom through the fairy in the first scene Mm -hmm. yeah before it gets to that i actually i wasn't sure it it was a fairy to start with i thought it was an airport until they zoomed back out and you could see that it was a boat no it's a staten island ferry because that's how commuters get from staten island to manhattan and it's actually free you don't have to pay to ride it nice which is really cool. Probably why I was so crowded. So if you're a, if you're a tourist in New York, you can do that. <laughs> okay. Nice. All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can send us an email at podcast at eloquentgushing.com. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Matthew Vose. And I thank you so much for joining us. Um, I loved the Cinderella insights and some of the the pulls you got from that. So thank you very much for sharing with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm at Anna underscore MCG on Twitter. Do, do we, we, if we say it, should we say Mukji or MCG? Can we do both? I, I, <laughs> I say MCG. Okay. Okay. We'll go with what you say. Um, Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network and develop new shows. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to check out the homepage eloquentgushing.com to find the other shows on the network. We'll be back next week with another episode where we'll talk about Amelie. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Yeah, you do. 
Oh god, that's a terrible line. <laughs> it's a really it's terrible so line. Bad. <laughs> oh yeah, it was bad. Pop culturally deprived is an eloquent gushing production. For more information, please visit eloquentgushing.com.